Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. October 1st. October is my favorite month. I'm not a sun bunny. I prefer autumn. Are there um, any... Uh, questions or uh, particular um, items of interest that uh, people have before I begin my formal talk. I kind of have one. Um, I came to Buddhism from a place where I was a little bit more suffering and uh, a little bit more pain in my life. And now things are going really well. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wonder, you know, it seems like it's it's a very useful thing not to be attached when things are kind of bleak. But when things are great, you know, what's the perspective? Do you try not to be attached to that? Yeah. And, you know, even though it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my teacher used to say, a good situation is a bad situation. That's <laughs> a... Um, for, uh, partly for, for the reason you mentioned. It's, it's been my observation that most people enter into Buddhist practice and other spiritual traditions as well because things aren't going well in their life. Uh, like there's uh, some kind of uh, difficulty. Like, um, and so uh, the, the motivation for entering uh, into practice is uh, uh, personal suffering. Um, uh, it, it's usually psychological or uh, existential. Um, uh, it, it can be physical as well, um, or emotional. Like, but um, when that situation changes, and, and inevitably it will, and things get better, then uh, there's a very high dropout rate. <laughs> so, and, uh, and that's okay. I mean, I th actually, I think it's a good thing that there are um, that the Dharma can serve that function, that that sort of therapeutic function. Like, in order to maintain one's practice through the uh, good times, yeah, so um, what's necessary is to develop bodhicitta. Like, um, and uh, developing bodhicitta means developing the mind that is uh, practicing for the benefit of others. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm not sure what tradition you practice in. I mean, it, it depends on the tradition, um, how, how that is accomplished. Like. But if you, if you have a comprehension of the core understanding of the Buddha as the interdependent nature of all existing things, then um, slowly one begins to realize that when one enters into practice, one, um, uh, one's practice has effects and meaning, not just for oneself, but for other people as well. Uh, um, 
the comparison I like to use is, uh, uh, to, to illustrate this point is, is to breathing. And so when we breathe, it's not just us. Uh, I, mean, I am breathing, but all of existence is breathing me. So I, I could not breathe if it wasn't for um, the rest of existence supporting that activity. So when I enter into meditation, it's not just I that am entering into meditation. Existence is entering into meditation. All right. the, um, I, I don't mean that I am egotistically benefiting all the rest of existence by meditating. All right. you know, like the, uh, that I am bestowing you know, personal blessings on uh, the ignorant masses. <laughs> like, uh, what, I, what I mean is that if you perceive meditation as, um, as arising out of the interconnectedness of all conditions, then one moment of peace, one moment of serenity, one moment of clarity in meditation is a moment of peace, serenity, and clarity for all sentient existence. This is how it's possible to actualize the bodhisattva vows. Like the, it, this is how it's possible to bring the bodhisattva vows to fruition. Oh, so that... Um, Sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. One moment of peace, one moment of calm, one moment of clarity saves all sentient beings from suffering for that moment. Um, when, when you have a mind uh, that, uh, of bodhicitta, so that the, um, the motivation for your practice is to um, relieve the sufferings of other sentient beings, Practice is as smooth as glass. No problem. <laughs> so, it's, it's really quite amazing how wonderful bodhicitta is in um, uh, creating conditions that are conducive to practice in a, very, in a very smooth way. When we are wrapped up in our own uh, uh, personal suffering, the, the reason practice can be very rocky is we have a checklist. You know, like, are things getting better? You know, like, is it, you know, like, um, like, uh, and since, um, since our desires for improvement are absolutely endless, <laughs> that, that approach, that approach eventually exhausts itself. You know, like, um, there, are, there are some Buddhist traditions in, um, which, uh, suggest that you know uh, that if you do not have your pure bodhicitta, that your practice is not um, good. That human beings, uh, being what they are, m- my own opinion about that is that our motivation is probably mixed, you know, like almost all the time. You know, like, but even a little bit of bodhicitta will form a foundation for a practice. And I wouldn't worry. In other words, I wouldn't worry about mixed. Uh, um, mixed motivations. You know, if you cultivate bodhicitta, if you bring that mind in, into your awareness of uh, practicing for the benefit of all sentient beings, bodhicitta will grow. It's a very powerful understanding because it's rooted, bodhicitta is rooted in that primal insight of the interconnectedness of all sentient beings. So, so that's where bodhicitta comes from. So in a sense, you could say that dependent origination uh, pratitya samutpada and bodhicitta are facets of the same realization. Like so. 
Is that helpful? Or? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm glad that your situation is good. Uh, I, when I was in Korea, uh, I uh, uh, visited a mountain monastery where uh, um, they've been meditating there for like 1,100 years. It was really it was fantastically beautiful. You know, just, I mean, it was like uh, this. Um, waterfall cascading down the mountains with pine trees framing the view. I mean, it was just like this Chinese, you know, watercolor, right? So, and my first morning there, I, we arrived at night and I, I really couldn't see it. It was a moonless night, but in the morning I got up very early and I was just swept away by the uh, physical situation. <laughs> my teacher came up behind me and he whispers, he goes, Sometimes a good situation is a good situation. <laughs> it's like he was reading my mind. <laughs> I could stay here forever. <laughs> so, um, any other uh, questions or, or comments? I'd like today uh, to talk about faith. Um, it's come up in... Uh, um, several interactions I've had with people in, in groups and, and so I thought it, was a, it would be a good time to, to talk about faith and its relationship to Buddhist practice and in some Buddhist traditions uh, they, they, will, they very strongly emphasize the role of faith that you, that you have to have faith in order to make any progress and that uh, faith is an, uh, absolutely essential in order to um, have uh, any insight or any clarity or uh, w without it you're just uh, not going to make any progress at all. Not, not all Buddhist traditions emphasize it equally but it's interesting that even in a tradition like that, that doesn't seem at first to um, emphasize faith uh, you'll find um, you'll find upon investigation that it is emphasized. So a, a good example is Zen Master Dogen, who uh, writes very eloquently in the Shobo Genso about how, how important faith is as a, as a foundation for practice. And even though that's not, you know, like at the gate, you know, like uh, of, of a Soto Zen temple, at some point in your Soto Zen practice, you would encounter uh, that kind of teaching. It's been my observation that uh, for Westerners, this uh, teaching can be highly problematic, you know, like um, and even um, um, distasteful. <laughs> like, uh, and I, th I think it has to do with uh, um, how Westerners enter the practice and their their background, uh, particularly those Westerners who have consciously rejected um, the spiritual tradition in which they grew up in. Uh, which would probably be uh, Christianity or, or Judaism, you know, like so. Uh, rejecting faith um, as a component of that overall re rejection is often a, a very strong component of, of why they decided to reject that particular tradition. And so then when they enter Buddhism and they encounter some teacher saying, you must have faith, uh, it rings that uh, bell, you know, it feels very uncomfortable. So what I'd like to do is explore what faith means within the Buddhist tradition and how it interacts um, with, with the practice. The contrast I'm going to make is with faith and belief. Right? So it'll become clearer um, uh, 
as my talk progresses with the distinction that I'm trying to make between the two. Um, Edward uh, Kanzi, the, uh, the Buddhist uh, scholar, uh, wrote a really good and very insightful essay uh, on the nature of faith within the Buddhist tradition. And he, um, he suggested that there are a number of aspects to faith within the Buddhist tradition. The first one he calls intellectual assent to doctrines not substantiated by immediately available factual evidence. <laughs> that means uh, agreeing, to, uh, agreeing to accept something even though you don't have evidence to support that particular point of view. No. So... That, um, and in Buddhism, this is considered like a preliminary step, um, that, that you have to be willing to entertain um, for consideration uh, the, the Buddhist view of the world or the uh, core Buddhist understandings, even though they may not be clear to you, even though, uh, from your point of view, there may not be factual evidence supporting those. Now, um, in other words, you, you have to have a willingness to try it out. You, know, you have to have a willingness to try it out. This is tricky, you know, like because um, there are core understandings of the Buddhist view which are not obvious. You know, there's, uh, for example, um, dependent origination, the fact that all things arise uh, dependently upon causes and conditions is not obvious. There are many philosophies and spiritual traditions, in fact, which would dispute that. Well, they would not agree with that. Like, um, and, uh, and there are many people, on an emotional level, um, uh, there are, there's a kind of reaction to that because we want to um, understand ourselves and interact with the world as separately existing individuals. So it's a very strong force and habit in our psyche. So that when you hear that all things exist dependently or interdependently, that's not a, that's not immediately apparent. Like so, um, so the kind of faith that is being talked about here um, is a willingness to try that idea, a willingness to to engage with that and see if it works. Um, in this sense, I. I I see the concept of faith as the opposite of cynicism. You know, like, uh, cynicism is a kind of, oh yeah, right, everything's interdependent, sure. <laughs> like, like if, you, if you have that attitude, you'll, you'll never give it a try. You know, you'll, never, you'll never try and engage it, you'll never try and internalize it and, and move with it. Like, so, um, another um, example would be emptiness. It's not clear that all things are empty. <laughs> it, it often takes many, many years of practice in order to gain to gain clarity on that point. But like I mean, it really uh, like so a willingness. Uh, once again, the uh, the practitioner needs a certain willingness to say, "Hmm, that is that's a very strange idea." You know, like um, you know, like. How how does that work? You know, like what once again? What I'm talking about is kind of a, developing a neutrality toward these ideas, so that there's a spaciousness in the mind that's willing to work with them, even though 
at first, it's not immediately apparent whether they're true or false. In other words, you're not, you're not making a decision. This kind of faith is not saying, I believe, you know, because you know, somebody told me about it. Rather, it's, it's a willingness to open the mind and say, that's a very interesting idea. I wonder if it's true. You know, and, and allowing that to um, resonate you know, in your mind, in your heart, and, and see. Um, another, um, another doctrine that's um, often not clear is the idea of no self that's a real puzzle has been for, uh, for Buddhism right from the beginning <laughs> like, very, you know, you know, like, I mean, there are all sorts of questions you know, like, uh, if there's no self who's the recipient of karma if there's no self who is it who's talking <laughs> if there's no self who is it who's listening you know, like so uh, <laughs> there, there are all sorts of um, uh, good reasons to um, uh, to bring up and say, you know, like, well, what does that mean? But the but faith is willing to say, well, I think the Buddha is a trustworthy source. You know, like, um, I'm going to I'm going to give the Buddha the benefit of the doubt here. You know, like and see how this idea works, see how this understanding works. Like, and, um, an- another area is uh, efficacy in meditation. Does, does everybody remember their first uh, retreat? So, <laughs> my first retreat was five radios going on at the same time in my brain. <laughs> my, my back uh, was uh, very uncomfortable. You know, like and um, and you know I mean I went for seven days and it was um, it wasn't until you know like the end of it that I uh, that I could look back at it and sort of see that 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 was okay and I was willing to willing to do another you know another retreat but most of us our first experience in meditation is not one of calm serenity and insight. <laughs> you know, like, so there, once again there has to be a certain um, I prefer the word trust here to the word faith but it is the word that you will encounter most often among Buddhist teachers or in Buddhist literature you know, there has to be a certain willingness to say I'm going to give this a try you know, like, then you know I mean it's a legitimate question. Why should I give it a try? A competent Buddhist teacher will be able to answer that question. Or like, I mean, the, the the reason you should give it a try is many, many centuries of people have practiced in this way, and it has produced efficacious results. Or like, and the results are, you know, as follows. Or like, um, and uh, one of the things in the Buddhist tradition that um, Builds a sense of. Um, do you mind if I shift to the word trust here? So, uh, that builds a sense of trust uh, is storytelling. That's why uh, Buddhist teachers tell so many stories about past practitioners. You know, like because uh, it builds a sense of trust in us that though all those people were able to do this, all those people were able to do this. I'm like those people, you know, like I'm not really that different, you know, like, um, and, uh, you know, from the point of view of the Dharma, I'm not different at all, because 
because I am a suffering, impermanent, and interdependent being. You know, like, which is the key? Uh, so, uh, if if that can be accomplished on their part, it can also be accomplished on my part. It may not seem so at this time. You know, like I've been meditating uh, for you know I've meditated three times and nothing's <laughs> happened. <laughs> but, but but by by hearing these stories, it builds a sense of trust. You know, like that that this tradition is reliable. I like to look at this aspect of, of faith or trust um, from uh, the perspective of other kinds of activities. Um, I personally find have found it helpful to do that so that the what's going on in my Dharma practice um, makes um, these other activities illuminate uh, what's going on in my Dharma practice. So in a sense, any kind of activity you undertake requires the foundation of this kind of faith and trust. For example, if I want to learn music and I go to a music teacher, I have to have a certain amount of trust in that teacher. I have to, you know, like I, I have to have faith that they know what they're doing. How do I know? Well, they're playing their music. You know, like um, they have other students, you know, like, who I can talk to, and they say yes. You know, like this teacher, um, as a matter of fact, very skillfully showed me how to do such and such. Or um, I might know about that particular music teacher's teacher. Well, that might be meaningful. So, um, it, it's also helpful because, you know, like, it, suppose I suppose I have the goal of of what's propelled me into learning music is hearing some really exquisite, beautiful music. You know, like, um, but it's very it's very complicated, and that's what I want to do. And I go to the music teacher, and the music teacher says, "Well, you know, like this is a quarter note. This is how you hold your hands. <laughs> this is how you play your scale." It, it can seem very frustrating, you know, like a, you know, because what I what I want is that uh, that full musicianship, you know, like. Um, so if I have a foundation and trust. You know, I can realize that there is a path to that full musicianship, you know, like that, that I have to go through these steps. You know, like, I mean, the same uh, would apply to learning a language. You know, learning a new language. Let's say I want to pick up German or Spanish, something like that. You know, like once again, I need a, there. There needs to be a minimal foundation of trust, you know, like um, in the text and the teacher. Um, um, the Chinese master Xing Yun uh, often makes a comparison to learning mathematics. Like so, if uh, suppose I'm very attracted to mathematics and I want to learn calculus or transfinite um, <coughs> mathematics, it's uh, first I have to learn algebra. Like, and once again, I have to I have to have an understanding that this teacher, you know, like uh, mathematics, has the capacity to do this. I like. Um, so what I'm getting at is that what Buddhism is requesting when it says that uh, faith is foundational is not really different from what is requested in other activities. I like, and and for me, I have found that very helpful to make that equation. You know, like the word, you know, like usually, <laughs> if I go to a music teacher, they usually don't use the word faith. 
you know, like, or, you know, like, so faith is a charged word, you know, like, um, in our culture, you know, like, uh, it, it has a lot of connotations that are difficult for us, but if we see how it is functioning in the Buddhist tradition, there is its meaning, and its meaning is not, is not really that different from uh, what is being requested if you want to enter into any kind of understanding or activity. Uh, does, does that make sense, what, I, what I'm saying here? Do people have questions or, or comments? Yeah? Yeah, because, I mean, you, you open constantly this whole specialist time around all kind of words. But the moment you bring issues up like that, there's something in me that's over-centered, you know, and then there's something that says, yeah, I mean, I do believe in certain things, and I have faith that I can accomplish those things. Well, you, for example, use the word empty, I would send this word emptiness, period. Because it means something else to me, but I understand the meaning of the word itself, the way I feel that you have faith, the way you explain it. But I don't like the word itself, because it has something different meaning to me, so I reason all the time. And I think, you know, when, because I'm teaching myself in college, I'm standing there, I explain everything very clearly, I use all the words I have to explain it and show it to the students and they still come back with 10 different things. So I realized they didn't all interpret my words the same way as I interpret them when I said them. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yes. So when I listen to some of your words, I, I reason constantly with the, the value of the word itself. Like right. Does it make sense now? Yes, it does make sense. There is there is always an interpreter. We bring to the um, we bring to the Dharma our biography, our our autobiography, uh, and and our history, and that and that interprets the Dharma, uh, and that's that's good. That's wonderful. That's how the Dharma continues to grow and flourish. So. My, my understanding of the history of Buddhism is somebody will interpret the Dharma and then they will offer that interpretation. If they are clear enough, charismatic enough, uh, they will, um, there will be followers, you know, like, and a new, and a new uh, emphasis or elucidation of the Dharma is brought forth. So, I mean, a, a really good example of that in the, in the West right now is how the understanding of reincarnation is being reinterpreted you know, like um, because of the history of Western culture and the, the kind of consciousness <clears throat> that we bring to that understanding. Um, I think it's very creative. I don't know exactly what will result you know, from all of that. But, that, but this kind of faith or trust um, allows, allows for that. You know, so... Um, Every time somebody plays a piece of music, it's a little different. You know, they bring they bring to that piece of music, even if it's a through composed. You know, even if it's noted, you know, it's not a jazz composition. It's some something that somebody has written every note down. Um, every time somebody performs it, it's a little different, a little faster, a little slower. They'll bring out uh, certain nuances that haven't been heard before, um, and that is also true with the Dharma. You know, like. Uh, so if you don't like the, the word emptiness, I would encourage you to elucidate the meaning you know, like, and find a term that is more conducive for you. So there's, um, there's a, um, 
a doctrine in Buddhism called the Four Reliances. You know, like, and one of the reliances rely on the meaning, not on the words. You know, like, and uh, so the term emptiness is problematical for a lot of people. And it has also been problematical throughout the history of Buddhism. You know, like, so um, so that, that's kind of <coughs> my response. Yeah, because I think uh, I like to reason all the time. And as a gay person, I'm here because I'm descended from other religion. And now into Buddhism, do I have to have faith in what somebody said 2,000 years ago or whatever about gay issues? And can I reason with it and still consider myself a part of that Buddhist tradition and don't have to buy into every single thing? That's what I want to do. Yes. You know, like what I'm talking about is shifting from faith to trust. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah? Did you? I, I think, I just want to say, I, and this applies to reason too, um, I think your definition of faith is a really good one in terms of Buddhism. Um, the willingness to try to solve this problem, for example, in Zen. Um, you're taught to doubt, and right? Doubt, yeah, and the, the object of the object of the koan practice is to uh, develop a, a, what's known as a doubt mass. It's sort of it's sort of an obsessive, an artificially induced obsession. One of them is uh, well, we're taught all all beings have good nature, and the first koan. Uh, in in Zen in Minzai practice is move, and what what that is is uh, a monk very seriously asks his teacher, does a dog have a Buddha nature? Okay. And the teacher says no. No, move is translated in, in Japanese. No, he says no. Yeah. You know what do you do with that? Uh, exactly. One is, what's the sound of one hand clapping? There's no answer to that. Um, show me your face before your parents were born. Um, one I like really, one I one really profound one I like is when the Buddha became enlightened. He said um, that um, the, the world is perfect just as it is right now. And Buddha lived in a very violent time, wars all the time, he was suffering. It's pretty much the same as now. Um, so what what happens is when when you when you try to reason out these problems which are paradoxical and have no real answer, it, it forces the mind to leap beyond logic, beyond reason, into a different way of thinking. Yeah. Um, could I? Yeah. Go ahead. Um, the the cultivation of doubt, you know, like uh, in the Zen tradition, you cultivate great doubt, great great faith and great doubt simultaneously, the, uh, which seems very, uh, seems very paradoxical. But actually, if you understand the faith that is being talked about here as a willingness to try, doubt is very conducive to... Doubt and faith are mutually conducive to each other. So, so for example, if you hear that all things arise dependent on causes and conditions, you know, like... It is good to examine that. How do you examine that? You ask yourself, is that really true? That's doubt. You know, is it really true? Are all beings have Buddha nature? Is that really the case? 
you know, like by raising doubt, you enter into the realm of the Dharma. You draw yourself deeper in into the understanding and the ramifications. You know, like uh, blind acceptance is actually a way of keeping yourself from entering into the realm of the Dharma and comprehending its meaning. Like so. Um, I want to, if it's okay, I want to move. Oh, sure. one. Um, well, maybe, Brooke, I'm not sure I'm understanding blind acceptance because I know there's some teachers, like if I hear um, Stephen and Rambiva being uh-huh. or Chodra, and some of my favorite teachers, Teeth Nahan, um, say something, I might not understand it yet, right. but, but I trust them enough to know that maybe someday I will understand. Is that blind acceptance? No, no. Um, uh, as long as it's come up, I'll move ahead in my targets. <laughs> That's what I meant by faith versus belief. So, the the reason the term faith is so charged for many of us in uh, in Western culture is that um, faith is tied to truths that are um, that must be accepted unconditionally, you know, like and and must never be challenged. What I'm talking. When, when a spiritual tradition offers a particular truth and says that this truth is off-limits, this truth is not investigatable, that transforms faith into belief, or that transforms faith into dogma. And that is, uh, that is why um, uh, the term faith has such a, a touchy relationship for so many people in our Western culture. Because when we hear the word faith, we tend to hear it in that extreme context. You know, like um, a good, uh, just to illustrate this uh, view uh, with two historical examples. Uh, one would be Tertullian's, you know, like famous uh, statement: "I believe because it is absurd." And that is saying, I'm not going to investigate this. I don't care. You know, like, um, you know, like, and uh, it's not only in religion. You also find this in ideologies and politics a lot. You know, like certain, you know, certain statements are off limits. If you if you choose to doubt those or investigate those, then you're out of their group. You know, like, I mean, then then you are excluded. Um, one of the interesting things when you look at the Buddhist canon is uh, take a, a well-known sutra like the Heart Sutra. The Heart Sutra doubts the Four Noble Truths. You know, like, it says, you know, no origin, you know, it's no suffering, <clears throat> no origin, no cessation, no path. Boom. I like that. So, And even so... Yeah, you know, like I mean, the four noble truths are like at the heart of the Buddha Dharma, like. Um, but even the four noble truths are not dogma. Even the four noble truths need to be investigated and understood, you know, like creatively engaged. You know, like, um, see, I think that it is possible to live a life completely free from belief and dogma. I think it is possible to do that. I think. It is possible to do that. I like that. That, that a mind that is uh, deeply uh, meditative and contemplative, that has that um, don't know before thinking understanding, is a mind that is free from 
that kind of uh, relationship to the realm of ideas. I, I doubt that it's possible to live without trust. You know, like, um, I trust my auto mechanic. <laughs> I trust the baker. You know, like, I trust the florist. I trust, you know, I trust the telephone operator. You know, like, um, there's you know, a thousand interactions every day that, uh, that, have this that have this foundation of trust. This willingness to... Um, I, mean, I trust that there's an Eiffel Tower in Paris. <laughs> like, but, uh, but if somebody said there's not, I mean, it wouldn't be a big blow to me. You know, like, uh, so the, this shift, uh, what we're talking about is the, our relationship to the realm of ideas. Um, our relationship to the realm of ideas. I like. When that realm of ideas is transformed into something fixed, um, it runs smack into impermanence and change. I like. uh, no wonder people who uh, believe in certain kinds of dogmas are um, usually extremely tense people. I like. Uh, you know, like uh, Change and transformation happens all the time at every level, and it happens in the realm of ideas. So let me give a, a good historical example. For 3,000 years, Euclid ruled the realm of geometry. And there was a very, uh, um, in Western culture, Euclid was viewed as someone who, Euclid geometry was space. You know, like that, that, that was its, for 3,000 years, absolutely unquestioned. Then, uh, it, in the middle of the 19th century, somebody said, well, I'm not, I'm not sure that that really follows. I'm not sure that that's, you know, that that's right. You know, like, and, um, see, in mathematics, that's okay. You know, like you can do that. You know, like even, even a system that had withstood you know, like 3,000 years of investigation and use, you know, like the mathematicians who questioned Euclid were not, you know, um, excommunicated <laughs> from their from their professorships or their or their inquiry. In fact, they turned out to be, you know, correct. You know, like um, so. Uh, it, I like to use this example because it, it it's almost humorous. The idea of you know uh, you know like some. Uh, mathematician excommunicating another mathematician for questioning you know, like a, a core idea. I mean, not that mathematicians can't get passionate about their you know their view of, of mathematics, but but a core idea is not considered off limits to revision or off limits to questioning. You know, like that's the key. That's why mathematical ideas are not dogmas. You know, like so. Um, similarly, in Buddhism, you know, like. Uh, every person needs to engage the Buddha Dharma, you know, like in this process. Well, is it really true that all things are empty? Is it really true that all things arise dependently? You know, like, is it really true, you know, like that, uh, you know, like <clears throat> that the compassionate heart of understanding can blossom within me? You know, like, um, and if you investigate that, doubt is a wonderful foundation for the blossoming of understanding. So in, uh, the doubt builds the trust. The trust builds the doubt. Is, is that responsive to your question? Good, thank you. Um, one other aspect I wanted to bring out about faith 
is uh, that Kanzi mentions, which I found really interesting, is that he says that in traditional Buddhism, one of the aspects of faith is faith in oneself, which he says is, he calls it a synonym for confidence. I like. Um, and I, I find that really, uh, really intriguing, uh, and that, that, that that's one of the components of the Buddhist understanding of faith or trust. The, the idea here is that I am capable of understanding this. I am capable of entering into this practice. So once again, if you relate this to uh, more ordinary activities, I think it clarifies it. It's like if I want to learn music and I have absolutely no confidence in my ability to become a musician, I'm not going to take the first step. I'm just not going to do it. It's going to be, you know, like, oh, you know, like, I just... Like I can't. Uh, or uh, Xing Yun always likes to use mathematics. You know, like if somebody is convinced that their capacity for understanding numbers is, you know, just isn't there, they're they're not going. They're not going to take the class. They're not going to, you know, uh, practice their numbers. It, it isn't, and it isn't going to happen. You know, like, so with without that basis, it, it doesn't have to be huge. You know, like. But there does have to be some minimal sense of confidence in oneself. The reason I find this uh, so intriguing is, you know, like uh, Buddhism always talks about no self and emptiness. So, but they advocate that you need to have confidence in yourself in order to enter the practice. I, I find that a very interesting mix. You know, like, uh, but um, but I think it's true. You know, like that. Um, if somebody, you know. Uh, doesn't have a, a minimal sense that serenity, clarity, insight, and compassion are possible for them, well, like then uh, th- then they aren't going to enter into the practice. I mean, I've seen this many times. You know, it's like, oh, you know, like I'm just too um, I'm too angry. You know, I'm t- I'm much too angry of a person. I'm much too depressed of a person. I'm much too you know this. So so I'm not going to give it a try. You know, like so, if you if you don't have that minimal sense of trust in yourself, then um, then it's not going to happen. And one of the roles of a Buddhist teacher that when I read this, it suddenly clicked for me. Oh, that's why you know my teacher kept saying you can do it. <laughs> You know, in, various, in various ways, you know, it's like it's uh, it's building. That's it's kind of like a coach, you know, a Dharma coach. You know, like <laughs> you know, like that, that, you know, like you, you may not see at this time that that you can uh, attain that understanding, have have that kind of insight, you know, like or are capable of that kind of realization. But I know, you know, as a teacher, I know that 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 you can. Why? Because all sentient beings can. Like um, so, uh, it's. I, I just find that that a wonderful, uplifting aspect of the um, uh, of the understanding of faith. You know, it's based on the fact that I and you, we are not basically different from all those people in the past who have also attained understanding and realization, um, and. Uh, and because we are not different, you know, like the Buddha and you, the Buddha and me, uh, same same person, you know, like same person from the point of view of the Dharma, you know, like 
And so awakening is possible, understanding is possible. So, um, in a sense, um, returning to the, um, <clears throat> the aspect of dogma, um, the contrast I want to make between faith and belief is that faith is transformed into trust through our experience of practice. Right? As our meditation continues, as our contemplations continue, as our study continues, faith is transformed into trust. Um, and it's like we something clicks in our mind, we have a certain experience in meditation, and then we understand, oh, that's what they were talking about. I get it. You know? Belief cannot transform into trust. By belief, I mean dogma. Okay. Dogma is, and because of that, Dogma always feeds an authoritarian kind of relationship. Like it's, it's foundational for, uh, for spiritual authoritarianism. Like, um, uh, you, a good example of this, um, you know, I use Tertullian, but there's a thread of this in Western culture, you know, not only Western culture, but since that's our background, you know, I'm focusing on that. You know, Kierkegaard was a very articulate proponent of of this kind of attitude. And he called it the leap of faith, but I would call it the leap to belief. um, That even though it makes no sense, even though I will never have any evidence that supports this understanding, even though it is of the nature that there will never be an experience to support and understanding. Nevertheless, I make that leap of leap. You know, like, um, so, so I understand psychologically the two realms to be really quite different. You know, like, first of all, faith, faith and trust. Faith evolves into trust, so it changes. You know, like, there's a constant kind of ebb and flow and dialectic between faith and trust. You know, you know beginning with faith. We enter into our practice, we have certain experiences, trust blossoms. That trust allows us to explore other realms of the Dharma you know, like, and go through that same process. Belief does not allow, does not allow for that. It is an attempt, uh, it, is, is, it is an assault on the fluidity of the mind. It is, a, it is an assault on the ephemerality of ideas. You know, like it is, uh, you know, like that. That kind of structure is an is an attempt to fix the world of the mind. You know, like it, it's possible for us to engage the world without any beliefs whatsoever, in the sense of fixed ideas and dogmas. You know? The way you do that is <clears throat> by keeping in the Zen tradition, Korean Zen tradition, they would say, call it keeping a don't know mind. A don't know mind. A don't mind means. Yeah, like, and this is the example I always like to use. You've probably heard it before, but uh, you know, like when I hear the sound of the wind chimes, an idea arises in my mind that the reason the wind chimes are ringing is because the wind is blowing. Okay. If I transform that idea into a dogma, and then you come to me and say, 
the next door na- the next door neighbor's kid just threw a tennis ball at the wind chimes. You're like, I will argue with you about that. I will say no, they didn't. It was the wind. You're like, you're like so. Most human disputes are like that. <laughs> like, they they arise out of that sense that the, that the realm of ideas needs to be fixed. You know, like somebody, you know, like so. A don't know mind means that uh, that um, though I have an idea, it's not it's not a psychic lobotomy. Okay, so a don't know mind means that um, uh, maybe that's true, maybe that's not, maybe something else is available. It's allowing space in my consciousness for the fluidity of existence. It's allowing the fluidity of of my ideas to reflect the fluidity of the world. And from that, there's this, when you enter into that, there's a marvelous sense of peace and serenity. um, Because you don't have to impose your ideas on existence. You don't have to make existence conform to one's own concepts. So I hope that we can all enter into that don't know mind and trust in the Dharma <laughs> and soon save all sentient beings from suffering. Thank you. Right on time. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.